Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazing. Coming up on today's show, writer, director, editor, Tomas Vingris. Uh, his new feature is called Motherland. It's playing the festival circuits, or whenever the festival circuits start back up. It was uh, scheduled to be playing Chicago, uh, Chicago International Film Festival, um, but obviously that's not happening. Um, but first up, what I watched this week. Um, it's another quarantine edition where... Um, I watched a lot, um, uh, doing my, trying to do my part. Um, started off the week with, I think some people are perversely watching their apocalyptic movie, so I put on World in, World's End. Turns out that's more about uh, the incipient drinking that follows uh, when quarantine, self-quarantine. Um, oh, Help, I saw Richard Lester's Help, which between Hard Day's Night and Help, I actually kind of prefer it, even though I did start reading some reviews um, of why I was dismissed at the time. And I mean, it's just this cool, uh, hybrid of like, you know, the Beatles doing more, more int- intense Monty Python goon style humor. And it's a bond parody too, which, and it's just, it's beautifully shot too. That's actually really the main reason. And, um, we've, I've had some debates with, uh, Ted Haycraft, the, uh, former guest and co uh, host. Um, he, he's a huge Richard Lester fanatic and he, um, he likes to talk about Hard Day's Night being the birth of the music video. And I think there's a strong argument that Help actually is the birth of the music video, the Alp sequences. Um, Killing Them Softly, the Andrew Dominic film I watched, which I don't understand why people don't bring that movie up. That movie is so good. And especially there's this element to it where the majority of the movie's content, thematic content, is all coming from um, what's playing on TV and radio. And so the week when, in the week that um, Congress finally passed the stimulus to help everyone out uh, for coronavirus, um, and there was debate about it being gamed, Killiam's always all about uh, grifting for the bailout in 2008. So on top of the fact, like, it has one of the, my favorite, or just amazing sound design, uh, for something simple. Um, I also went through... Um, Going deep into my, even though Glenn Kinney says you can't call it vegetables, uh, my vegetables list, um, I saw The Tribe, which is a 2014 French film uh, that I had heard was pretty intense. Uh, it, it was, but for it's it's amazing. It's just, it's really well done. It's So it's about a, a French school and a French uh, school for the deaf. And the movie is all done in sign language with no uh, subtitles. And uh, there's there's definitely a, like Lord of the Rings, maybe a less stylized Clockwork Orange Five, or, you know, just youth uh, youth d- degeneracy. Um, and uh, but it's it wasn't as it wasn't as rough as I thought. The other notable thing I thought was like the conceit really works. It's but at the same time, they, they have people who uh, are, aren't deaf mute, who just conveniently don't speak. Um, I saw this um, 1927 movie, Berlin Symphony of a Great City, which I'd always heard was um, kind of a companion to a man with movie camera. It turned out it wasn't that way. Um, and that's really the most interesting things I saw this week. Um, hope you all are staying safe. Um, staying inside it's just the state i continue to keep try you know keep calm can't you know plan out the rest of my day and not think too far ahead about um what this means just for the industry in general um 
I mean, it does feel like no matter what happens, this is a body blow to the theatrical. Uh, I, I posted this on the Facebook page, but Jason Bloom was uh, was on the Ben Shapiro po- uh, podcast, and he was saying that um, basically he thinks this is going to really going to variety in what plays in theaters is going to go down significantly. Um, and the mid mid uh, mid budget movie is really going to be hurting after this. Um, I, I don't know. I have this perverse, hopeful, naive idea that um, maybe the corporations would stop looking at the theatrical as a money maker, and uh, they'd get out of it. And so we'd return to uh, the uh, American New Wave of the '70s, right before corporations started taking over. Um, I really don't think this is going to happen. I just, it was, um, well, I was hopeful. Oh, I forgot to mention um, the other interesting viewership of the week, excuse me, of the communal experience. Uh, some friends uh, that I'm on an email chain with, we were originally going to get on Zoom or Skype or something and all watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, just because it, it just went up on Hulu altogether. We ended up just kind of doing an email thread commentary, which... I mean, for seeing it for the first time is probably not a good idea, but since I've seen it and loved it, um, experienced it the second time, um, I won't lie, it wasn't as communal as being in a theater, but um, I don't know how else we're supposed to uh, watch a movie right now except by ourselves, so... On today's show is Tomas Vingris. Uh, he's a writer, director, editor. Um, his uh, first feature, Motherland, uh, was playing the uh, festival circuits and hopefully will continue to after all this goes down. He's um, His parents were from Lithuania, and as we talk later in the show, Lithuania is a big part of the subject of all of his shorts and Motherland itself, too. But um, Tomas is also a very accomplished film editor. He's uh, ed- One of my favorite films he's done is called Kicks. Um, Notably, he edited Macon Blair's film, uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which won um, the Dramatic Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2017. Um, but he and I knew each other because we both, um, or I brief, or we briefly overlapped working for Terrence Malick on uh, Song to Song. Um, so I hope you enjoy this talk. <laughs> Are you in Brooklyn? Yeah, I'm in Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy. How long have you been there? Uh, in this place, like a year and a half or something. Where, were you, mo- you were in L.A. for a bit, weren't you? I was barely in L.A. Um, I, I was in Lithuania for a while, and then I was just sort of hopping back and forth between here and Lithuania. Is that the finish um, the movie? Yeah, it was for the movie, and then, like, I mean, I'm still, like, right now I just decided to be back here for... A hot second but um I'm, i mean i'm still going back and forth there are lots i'll probably be there in summer because we're developing another one over there and um it's just you know are you doing real post jobs like, are here are you doing like post and production and everything over in lithuania uh for my movie we did we edited everything in lithuania just because i mean the costs are are hugely different we did we had a co-production with Germany, so we did sound in Hamburg, and we did color in Latvia, in, in uh, Riga, which, uh, yeah, I mean, the post facilities in the Baltics are not are not great. 
um it's usually like it looks like a dude in a basement i mean like the best facility in all of Pennsylvania. like uh is is like this how it's like this how it's like it doesn't it doesn't compare to anything you'd find in like any major city in the u.s so but you know people still know their stuff it's just uh it's very different so i was happy to do sound in hamburg but um you're you're from lithuania let's start off with there yeah i well i was born DC. I was born in the States. Both of my parents were, uh, came to the U.S. in their 20s. Um, uh, and so I was born and raised in the U.S. And all of my summers uh, in Lithuania, basically after the fall of the Soviet Union. So like 92 onward, I would just be sent out there for the summer. Who would you stay with in the in? It depended. So like when I was very little, I'd be going with one of my parents usually, and we'd stay with family friends um, or like kind of more distant relatives. It was usually family friends. Uh, there was a while where it was just these like my dad's uh, friend had two kids, a, a, a daughter who was one year older and a son who was one year younger. So I just go out to the countryside with them and they kind of like would take me for a couple months or a month or something in the states are you from was it dc area yeah washington dc washington i'm not one of the millions of suburbs of washington i was a 202 i was dc i mean i could walk to maryland from my house but i was in dc um so what were the movie theaters like uh, in washington that you first started going to um so there's one that still exists somehow miraculously right by my house. It's called the Avalon. It's an art house theater, plays a lot of uh, independent foreign films. I'd say probably the best selection of movies in the DC area. There's also one in Georgetown that I'd go to a lot. Um, I mean, it was mostly, you know, mostly multiplexes and everything like that, but there was a few really, really nice ones in the Avalon, which was right by us is uh is great and it's like this really old theater with these like beautiful frescoes and like it's just i don't know it must have been i mean i can't tell you the the historical facts of it but it was like it's a it's it's one of those super old theaters with like the uncomfortable chairs but the, just like the beautiful details everywhere um and they tried shutting it down a couple times and the neighborhood just kind of came together and raised money for it and so now it's completely independently run and um yeah it's really cool and uh so, uh, do you remember your first uh, theatrical experience? Um, there's two early theatrical experiences that I remember very clearly. One of them was going to see Dances with Wolves and having a and getting really upset because my mom kept covering my eyes because <laughs> she wasn't aware how violent it would be. And I was getting really upset that she was covering my eyes. Um, Were you you're so like, I, you're old enough to watch it, you thought? I thought I was old enough to watch it. I mean, I was terrified by this, like, arrow-riddled body and stuff. But uh, but I was very upset that she was covering my eyes. Um, and the other one was Home Alone. I remember that, and I remember laughing so hard uh, that I peed my pants a little bit, and I was embarrassed to leave the theater. What do you... <laughs> What did, uh, what did your parents, sorry, what do your parents do? Um, my mom was a radio broadcast journalist at the Voice of America. So she was speaking in Lithuanian to the uh, Lithuanian um, listeners. You could only hear her in the U.S. with a shortwave radio, but she was, uh, she was a journalist. And of course, the Voice of America was like this, like, 
uh, for her, it was like a patriotic job because, you know, when it was formed, um, when she started working there, it was during the Soviet Union. For them, it was like this, you know, one of the few to get non-Soviet um, news or, or news from the West. Uh, but after the Soviet Union fell apart, it became kind of uh, kind of useless. And I think they eventually closed down the European division. Um, Who was taking it? Works... No, sorry, what was sorry. your dad? What was it? Well, my dad works uh, works for the Food and Drug Administration. He's just a little science geek, Which, virologist. Were they the ones taking you to movies? Yeah, they were. I mean, it's interesting because I didn't realize until I was an adult how good my parents' taste in movies was. Um, I mean, my my like my dad would. My mom was working nights frequently, and I remember like you know watching like just like hanging out with my dad while he was like watching things on HBO. And I have like visuals of these movies that were like clearly very. Um, I mean, like some strange things were like my my parents got in fights because my dad brought home a called Wanda for like family. Uh, for like a family viewing experience and we were both my sister and I were tiny and I was like we can't show this to the kids but um yeah I mean we weren't allowed to watch tv growing up but I think for the most part my mom kind of spearheaded what we watched and as far as I remember it's mostly like old westerns we have burned movies that we had on VHS so it was like Magnificent Seven and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were my two favorite movies when I was a kid okay uh and uh but then like i remember as a as a young adult or something i remember um i guess it was netflix when i went to college and netflix started um my dad and i would my my uh dad got me a netflix subscription and we started like sharing new movies and i was like his list is amazing and he's like calling me be like oh, there's this movie Fish Tank I think you'd like. And I was like, parents don't, <laughs> most parents shouldn't be, uh, or like parents of my peers shouldn't be watching. My mom went to see Melancholy in theaters four times. I mean, she'd like. Four yeah, times. Crazy. Uh, yeah, although that's, there's something weird with that one. Something struck a nerve for her because she's, she's also like obsessed with, I mean, for her, her, her real style is like Victorian era, like masterpiece theater. That's like, that really gets her going. But she went to see Melancholy four times in theaters, which is. So you guys didn't share stuff until you left for college? Yeah, we didn't really talk about, I mean, there wasn't, I don't know, my parents, maybe that's part of this colder Eastern European thing, but like, it's not something, they were very focused on like, giving us some sort of like cultural education, you know, growing up in DC, one of the nice things is you have the Smithsonian, so we were going to museums every weekend, Um, they take us to like, you know, whenever, like, we'd get standing room tickets for, like, opera and ballet a lot, because um, I feel like that, they felt like that was, like, an obligation, but maybe for them, movies wasn't, there's was more entertainment than anything else, so it's not something that they sort of had any active, they didn't seem to, like, put any kind of, like, I don't know, did they, active, do, did they treat the, active education. the movies as a big art? Because they clearly liked them. Uh, I don't... I don't think so. I think for them, it was still a slightly different category. It was still more entertainment. Um, it wasn't, at least it wasn't something that they would feel like we need to teach our kids about this. They were, they certainly were, uh, 
very focused on keeping the like quote unquote like garbage away from us like you know we weren't allowed to, to watch tv i'd like sneak in my mtv viewings because both my parents worked so i had a few hour window where i was um, that's when tv came in yeah where i could where i could do it but you know i'd have to like i'd like flatten out the cushions so it didn't look like anybody had been sitting on the on the couch and like remember which channel it was on to put it back to that channel wow all that yeah. What did you, uh, um, did you see movies in Lithuania? Yeah. I mean, so I've seen, a, I mean, when I, when I was spending my summers there, obviously movies, you know, you're in the countryside for the most of the time you're, you're outside and most of them. And like, if it was a rainy day or something like that, where we would go to the movies, it would most, uh, a Hollywood movie that, you know, my Lithuanian friends wanted to see. It was a little later where I started watching, older Lithuanian films. I was like probably post-college when I started uh, watch, like kind of, I don't know, paying attention to to, to more of that world. I mean, obviously like we saw, we had seen because of my, my, for my parents, you know, the Soviet, you know, my mom knew Tarkovsky, she didn't love him, but like, I I think we saw something that I watched. I think maybe Solaris I watched at home when I was, you know, a teenager or something like that. But I mean, my mom wasn't a huge fan of Tarkovsky. She said it was like all the, all the cool kids when she was growing up. Would, she's like, it's just something that like the, the cool boys would like talk about to pretend they understood when they didn't. Like um, it's the Russian David Foster Wallace or Chuck Palahniuk. Exactly. Um, um, so when did you start um, pushing and watching stuff on your own? Or developing your own kind of stuff you uh, yeah what you liked. there was a couple there was a couple movies that i remember kind of like changed things for me i remember i watched i think it was raising victor vargas it was like the first kind of like gritty indie film that i saw huh. uh what about that one in particular i don't know why i think i was in high school maybe i'm confusing this with something else there's some there's a few like movies where i was like well so i mean it was it was kind of a, <laughs> uh, 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 it was kind of two things at once. I mean, there was first of all, there was realizing that there were movies that were different, uh, which like I didn't, I don't know, it didn't, it wasn't really on my radar. But I'd say like filmmaking brought me into films more than films brought me into filmmaking, which is kind of a weird backwards thing. But I had a really close friend. I mean, I had I, I played with toys for an embarrassingly long time. Like we, me and I had a friend. We'd play like dress up or Legos or, or mic machines. Like for, we were, we were well into high school okay. um, before we, we uh, put that stuff down. And, and we reached a point where it's like, we knew that we shouldn't still play, um, but we were playing nonetheless. And, and Ad was a big geek and he had all this camera equipment and just like any kind of tech thing. So he had a video capture card which, uh, you know, back then you couldn't just like shoot something and then plug it into your computer and edit it. But he had, they had a video capture card and a camera. And at some point we had the realization, cause we like, you know, what we'd usually do is like, you know, you know, dress up and like wander around in the yard or whatever. And there's like reaching a point where like, that's embarrassing. If a neighbor sees us, we can't do that. So we were like, oh, if we bring this camera out, we're just making a movie. We're not, uh, <laughs> that's allowed, we can play if we're filming it and it kind of started from there where like i remember like doing these like we 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 had like our micro machines and these models and we dressed up and we kind of were intercutting 
you know, like my friend is like running down the stairs of the garage and it was like this, like, I even remember what the shot looked like and it wasn't intentional, but it's like this beautiful backlit silhouette. And because it was back, like the sun was coming behind him, you couldn't even see there was a kid. You just saw the silhouette of a gun with this uniform and it looked really badass. And we like cut that with like, you know, this like aerial of this like model town he had with these like Mike machine tanks. And it was really cool. Um, well, and suddenly you, I was like, how are you cutting this stuff? So I think it was, I think it was like either like the first premiere or maybe it was a thing called Pinnacle, but his dad had, so we had, we had um, basically this video capture card that could bring it into, it was like the earliest, I don't know, this was probably like, yeah, I I, I don't even know, late nineties, early aughts. And so we could bring it, we figure like, so we, I mean, we all, we knew like what the razor tool was and we knew how to like move clips and that's what we did. Um, and uh, and for some for that those first things we probably weren't even cutting it to be honest we were probably just like cutting in camera. Okay, um, that was my question because a lot of uh, yeah you seem like you're on the bridge of like needing to cut in camera versus like maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. some of this digitally. But I uh, cut off. Yeah. You, were, you were going to tell me about another shot that after the uh, badass silhouette shot. Oh no no and then and no oh, and then we just like did like this aerial of like the models and stuff and I was we were watching it and it was just so cool uh, and that's kind of what brought me to. Um, to being like oh this is there's something here that's like combining all of my interests even at that age because i was like you know because with this same friend we used to like do like long comic strips of like we were kind of like you know the, the dorky kids in school but we had a lot of these sort of fun things and it's like you know and he became an actor uh and it's kind of funny that we both sort of uh followed those paths were you into uh what were you reading as a teenager or were you into comics or anything I was not into comics. I was not into comics because I wasn't my my. I even like I wasn't allowed anywhere near them because my mom called them little monsters and she didn't understand what these like. <clears throat> it was hard. It was a hard sell for my my Eastern European parents that there's like these like strange mutant toys where you know she was she thought they they. Uh... So anyway, like so I had like a couple X Men figures that I gotten out of trades with friends. Well, what kind of literature were you reading then? I mean, my for like my my. I'm curious what what kind of writing influences you would have gotten in your teen years. Yeah, no. So I mean, it's like like preteen. I remember there was like, you know, we had this thing at the local library where you had to like read a certain amount of books in the summer. So that's when it was like you and you'd get prizes and like if you read a certain amount of books, you got like tickets to like a Caps game. Um, and so my especially my dad was like you know you need to get that prize but that that meant i could read whatever i wanted and i think it was mostly like world war ii books uh i read star wars books but i think that was a little later like this is like you know the non-school stuff so i yeah. you know of course i had to read all the school stuff and 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 you know what was deemed academically beneficial but when it came to me there was like um some book that still it's called like blood of eagles or something it was like this like kind of like historical fiction i'd say mostly there's one about there's like I I can still remember the covers of these, and there was one that I that I've tried googling a lot since then because I remember the story quite well. But it was like about a kid. It's like about a teenager in California whose family I think is Afghani, and he goes back with his and like but he's like a skate skater in like Southern California, um, and he for some reason or like maybe he lives with his mom. He has to go back with his dad to Afghanistan, he gets like caught up in this insurgent fighting the Soviets. Um, and uh, it's, but it's like, it was like pulp. It was like, it was like, 
garbage. I remember trying to write a book report about one of them. My teacher's like, this isn't a real book. Like, you can't write a book report about this. Um, but like, for that one, I really connected because I was like an American kid with immigrant parents. And like, he was fighting, and this kid was fighting like the Soviets. And that was like my dream as a Lithuanian, like to be pulled back into some conflict where I can fight the Soviets. Uh, which is funny because this is obviously pre-America having you know, anything, you know, being an insurgent in Afghanistan yeah. when this book was written was was the good guys kind of like the rambo was it rambo three is uh right rambo with the taliban um yeah exactly do you have or do you have a warm or do you like war movies or do you do you have a war movie you want to make or something like that i do i mean so it's like my secret dream to like direct action movies um yeah i do i mean i do it's uh you know i um I did not know this about you, especially having, like, yeah, I mean, I've really only seen Squirrels, the only thing of yours I've seen, but, like, right. I had, knowing that style. <laughs> yeah, I was funny. I was just rewatching The Saint the other, uh, the other day. Because I'm doing one? research. Yeah, because <laughs> this was a favorite movie of mine, and as when I was, like, 10 years old, whenever it came out, I remember, and I was, like, too young, I remember so clearly... God, there's so much. It was a. I, I saw it on. I don't know if it's like Netflix or HBO Go. It's on one of the streaming things, and I was, and I'm working on a. I, there's a producer here in New York that uh, asked me to write a, a treatment for something because yeah, he's an investor, and it's and it's in that more of that vein. Uh, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna rewatch some of these old movies that I hadn't thought about in ages. Because yeah, I mean, most of what I watch now is most of what I go out of my way to watch is you know. Uh, what were your other character-driven drama? What but, were your other research titles you watched for this right now? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's. I watched Shane and I watched The Saint. That's all I've watched for this in particular because it's got, it's you know this like fish out of water that has a very, very western feel, but it's like the good, it's like a good assassin kind of thing, okay. uh, kind of kind of movie. But the the tone of it is very western and this kind of like stoic character with the you know cold blooded killer type i mean who knows this is it's just a, it's you know i was i was happy to watch these two things and and uh i was more and, asking because i wanted to know what the uh, junk action movies from your teen years were or what the, if there was a li better list of those i don't know i don't think i wasn't that like i didn't have that deep i mean as a teenager we would watch like where eagles dare guns of navarone it was like these like old war movies so it wasn't necessarily contemporary stuff. Your parents influenced. No, on... it was mostly old, and and so the war movies were not coming from my parents. That was coming from a friend's parents who who had like a deep like we'd watch all these World War Two documentaries. We're kind of obsessed with well, like his yeah, his family was obsessed with or his, his side, you know, because his like grandfather was a British. Uh, Royal Royal Air Force pilot, and and I was and anything that was anti-Soviet was good on in my book. So you know wherever those two things merged, especially so World War Two would be more like the things that his his parents kind of VHS library. But uh, I mean, like the thing is, like we I was I mean my my screen time was it's funny to say that my screen time was very limited. I mean my parents were very active about like not letting me sit in front of the TV too much, not letting me watch too many movies because that you know to them it was still you know you need to be outside and play, and, and I was I was totally fine with that. So it was. It, friends houses was where i got most of it and then at home and we would have like movie nights it would, i mean it was mostly older movies and yeah there'd be a lot of discussion we me and my sister knew like when we would pick out movies at, at the at the video store it was right around the corner from me um you know we knew what our parents would nix and what they wouldn't so we we still had a, a pretty tight 
So did you go to, uh, you went to Columbia, right? I did. Was it immediately for filmmaking? No, no. Undergrad does not have a filmmaking major. There's a film studies major, but it's all theory and there's no production classes. So, I mean, at that point, even before college, I knew that I was interested. Like I knew it was on my radar. Making movies was something that interested me. And I had a really good friend who went to NYU undergrad. But again, this was something that you know, the strict immigrant parents be, were just like, there's no way you're going to film school. I was 17 when I started college anyway. And they're like, you're too young to make it, you know, you're too young to ruin your life this early. Did you skip a grade the, or did you just get in? I was just, they just put me in as, as soon as they could. Again, both parents working, they wanted to get us in school as soon as they could. So, so there was no, but I took several film classes and I mean, film theory, but, but it was a little annoying. I remember, you know, I took the first one. I really loved it. Like they started showing the same Eisenstein films over again. And I was like, well, I want to watch something interesting, but I would go to a lot of these, um, became friends with one of the TAs who was a, it was like a Columbia film school MFA student. And so I got on like a mailing list for all like these, like, like screenings and guest lectures that would come. So there was like, I, you know, I try to get, to get into these more interesting screenings and, and Columbia did have like a, a cool, you know, it was like a bi-weekly film screenings for various kind of European or independent films that I'd go to. And it was, an, it was a, you know, we still turned it like, you know, bring a flask and watch some random movie and then go out afterwards. Did, I mean, was this, um, did you have a desire to get to New York too out of the top of this? Or? I was, I really wanted to be in New York. Um, I don't know why, I just felt like, uh, my my high school in D.C. was sort of right in the middle of the city, and I, at the time, I decided that I you know didn't want to do like I I couldn't go to I mean again this is like sixteen seventeen year old me deciding that like oh I can't go to like a country club for college I need to be like in a city where there's all this action I don't, I don't know if that was like the smartest choice I think that like rural campuses have a lot there's a lot more kind of there's something about that like enclosed student environment where there's a lot more ability to like be creative and things that like you know the best my comparison is where my sister went to school like the best actors the best dancers the best uh, in retrospect i think there's a huge advantage to going to like a rural camp that are like more set apart and like uh from from a big urban environment because where my sister went to college you know everybody the best actors or the best dancers would be in school productions whereas at columbia you know you're if you're a good actor you're distracted you're by be, the city I'm, yeah or like if you're a good actor you're going to be in a broadway show you know like julia style that's why like these like like you know big names were in school with us because like they could still maintain their professional careers so you know if you're I knew a lot of people that were like, you know, they were interested in films, so they weren't making movies at school. They were interning for like major production. They were like interning for Miramax or something. I live um, uh, right by this uh, college called the University of Evansville, and it's actually got a relatively renowned theatrical department. And I was talking to one of mm -hmm. the uh, professors, and she was telling me that their schedule allows it. They used to go seven days a week, but it's six days a week. They give them Sundays off, but. It, she just kept telling me over and over. I, it's hard to explain how filled their schedules are, and there it's a it's a renowned department. Like Rami Malik mm -hmm. is the most famous uh, alumni wow. from there. But, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, were you were you making films while at Columbia? Yes. Yeah, I was part of the Columbia Television Station as a freshman. They re it had been it had gone defunct for like five or six years, and as a freshman, someone I knew restarted it. 
and they're like we just need content we just need anything and it was just like as a tv station and they just had like so basically one channel it just had a channel on the campus wide cable so any sort of dorms or anywhere else is like channel nine was the columbia television station this is intercampus. it's not broadcast anywhere else no it was just on campus but because I knew how to use a camera and I knew how to do basic editing from my little games in high school, uh, and those games, you know, other things, <laughs> we had some interesting things came out of those games. But anyway, so in college, I knew how to use camera. I was like, oh, this sounds cool. So me and a, a couple friends started doing at whatever. I mean, like weird, random ads. So we would do like ads for like shows or just promotional, like watch seats and you know and and so it was just playing there was like a green screen so we did like this like little ad for our like the late night eatery night place where you get like cheesesteaks and candy at like three in the morning uh with your columbia card so we just like a green screen of like three stoned kids like flying around like these like man like cutouts of like massive gummy bears and stuff um and then we made but we also made like you know what we thought were like serious artistic short films that you know would probably be super embarrassing to revisit do you want to talk about those embarrassing (laughs) art films so i mean the the, it's tragically my hard drive died the year after college and um i was like at the time you know i had no money and i was still like ready to pay a thousand dollars for recovery but they said they couldn't recover it and i took it to one place i took it to another place i'm sure that dead drive still lives them somewhere but you know it was like early digital era where you don't know that you need to have two copies of everything and all that so all of that stuff is i don't i mean i i have no access to it so i just have these like you know visuals these little memories of the tragedy with my end was um i remember um some of my college shorts were actually pretty decent or I would would not be embarrassed by them today, but mm-hmm. they were so big that, and transportation was at, at the way it was, there was no way to get them off the hard drive. Like, wow. I, I forget, what was that? It was, it was, um, it was bigger than a floppy disk. It was bigger or than a small floppy disk, but it was a thing that you get like a hundred megs or something on it. And I remember at one point I was going to try to uh, bug a friend to be like, can I put this on your iPod and get it off? Cause I think it was like, we couldn't go over the two gig limit or anything or something like right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then just so like, I remember there was this ticking clock at the end of the semester where they were, I don't mm-hmm. know if they were going to wipe the drives or what, but it was just gone, just gone. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Right. Oh, I mean, I still have all the DV tapes that has all that has all the footage. You think about re-editing them, call. trying to re-reassemble them? <laughs> I don't think it's gonna happen. Um, but I did find my old camera. I had like a Canon GL1, and I built a depth of field adapter for it because this is obviously before DSLRs. Okay. Um, and I, it was crazy. I just like you know, I I found this blog where you like you takes you through all the steps and it's like you added extension cubes and a little i didn't have one with a mirror so when i filmed everything was flipped and upside down but you get like extension cubes and then like an adapter extension tubes and an adapter to put on these i had these canon fd lenses for my dad's ae1 like photo uh slr and um and i had to order this thing off ebay from this like german guy that like fit into the extension cubes that had a little motor attached that like vibrated so you could add this um anyway uh so i could have like shallow depth of field i like 
found like created this like super, I had to like learn to solder to like get the battery to work. It was crazy. And I found that attachment. Um, when when did I, you do this? This was maybe senior year of college or maybe the year after college. Okay. It was in New York and I was, uh, yeah. So, cause it was basically like, I think like, you know, I put in like six months of free time to like <laughs> figure out this thing. I mean, obviously not working all the time, but like ordering these pieces and putting it together. And then like a year or two later, the, the 5d was introduced to the market and wow. became a completely useless tool but it was very cool i mean the the image is just like because it had this like very unique kind of look to it it's like this kind of grainy distort slightly distorted but like super shallow do you ever use it anymore uh so i found it uh recently like the last year or so um in storage and uh i don't know i was thinking about it. I, I don't know I think the problem would be to get the the Canon GL1 to be working, not the the, the adapter. Mm. But also, like, I don't even know what I would attach to. I mean, I guess any mini DV camera. But it'd be interesting. I've been trying to uh, transfer all my old mini DV tapes just because if I, I, I mean, if I have a vague idea of doing something with uh, mixed media, and I shot a ton of stuff back in the day that I knew was just going to be templates or, mm -hmm. like, stuff to mix together. Um, but, like... My old mini DV, I, I just, I have some friends who will give me one, but my mini DV player just has a straight line through it and I can't see shit. So, um, <laughs> what did you do after yeah. Columbia? I did some like film internship, a few film internships, but I did like, I remember one year where I was like, had a free internship for this production company and I was like cr literally squatting in a frat house. I had a friend who was in a frat who said there were empty rooms and I was just like sleeping on the couch of an empty room in a frat house and like eating like street hot dogs because you know my parents were like if you're staying in new york we're not going to pay for you to be there um it was a bit contentious my desire to to be in film especially at that time it was not a welcome uh career was, path was it a hostile like unwelcomeness no it was i mean at that point it was just like this is stupid um you're not gonna you can't survive off that because you know my parents didn't know anybody especially growing up in dc and being immigrants they didn't know anybody in the creative they didn't know anybody in the u.s in the creative fields a lot of their my my parents lithuanian friends were artists but in lithuania they came from the soviet union where the being an artist was like the highest career because you know nobody had any money but at least you were supported by the state um so so being an artist had a lot of respect and all that and they thought in the u.s it's it's just uh it's impossible i guess i was my parents uh, were kind of um very similar in the regards but they weren't they, they kind of just like hope for the best and they never openly said anything like they right. they i mean yeah i mean in theory they were supportive like they just but it was a similar situation they just never knew anyone who uh made a living off this and i mean I yeah. that was their main their main concern for sure yeah, so I mean, it was—it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was. Well, it was hostile later on. There was a moment where it was—it was hostile because, like, because I had my like fancy job and all this. So I went basically. I went into corporate. I went. I was in consulting for a few years. Um, and it got hostile when I dropped when I quit that, and I was like, no, I'm doing film. That's where because like you know, for my parents, it was like I had a nice job. Like you know, their they were their job was done. What was you know, the job? It was marketing strategy consulting. It was at a company. It was a small boutique consulting company. It was started by a couple of McKinsey partners who were doing mark who decided to do marketing strategy consulting. And it was new because it was like personality based marketing. So they were like one of the few, the like the first companies, as far as I know. I mean, whatever. Um, that like were using a lot of. They were combining like 
surveys with online user data and seeing where people like what people said they like to do and then what they actually did and like figuring out what kind of personalities were the most profitable to target for different fortune 500 companies. How long did you last? I was there for about two years, but all of my free time uh, was like, like I'd buy a camera, do this, you know, I'd I'd rent lights. uh, So I'd make little shorts. I'd make my roommates act in these little shorts. So like my like iBank or roommates, like they're like, five three hours of the weekend of like be like all right now i gotta act in this thing for me mm. um and one of those little videos that ended up being my uh submission that got me into afi a couple a year or two later um what was the uh anything notable about that that besides getting to afi with it i mean i kind of like you know i recently rewatched it and I was into it. I was like, you know, at the time I was terrified. I was like, oh, this sucks. I think that, you know, as like anything, like your your skills don't match your taste. And so I thought it was awful, but I didn't have anything else. So I didn't even finish it. Oh. But then when I was applying to AFI, I was like, well, I need to submit something. So I cut it down and then submitted just whatever because I had I had to submit something. Um, and and uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was about, I mean, it was something that I was always all around me, but I lived in a really nice apartment because it was like a friend, parent bought an apartment, stay there for like, live there for a year. I mean, we were paying rent to them, but barely anything um, relative to the cost of this apartment. It was like a beautiful, big apartment in Tribeca. So like the nicest place I ever lived or ever will live when I was 21 years old. Um, but uh, so we shot this and we had a lot of friends from that world who like right off the bat they were finishing college and they were finding themselves like underemployed no no this is like the opposite this is like uh spoiled upper east side girls that were graduating college and like finding themselves like 30 year old hedge fund managers and getting married and like and you could just like imagine their lives going out like they're gonna be fucking the tennis pro in Mm. 10 years like you could just see they were just like you know it wasn't all of them but there was a few of people that I knew from college it's just like you could just see they just got like sucked right into that world where like okay now they're gonna move to Connecticut or Westchester and be in the country club and make babies for this guy who's gonna start you know anyway and you could already and we could see it in our jobs because uh, the people the, my my roommate and I banker one worked at a law firm and you could see like these older managers that are like clearly sleeping with the HR it was just like a really quick insight into this like very cynical world of like super wealthy New York corporate whatever so that short was about um, my friend, my roommate, I think her roommate was kind of basically playing, playing his boss and, and an actress friend of mine was playing this like, young, lonely housewife whose husband's never home and she lives in a big, beautiful apartment by herself. She's still and it's like her kind of fantasizing. Uh, her ha- like, it's like cuts back and forth between like her coming home uh, after, you know, we don't know what she's coming home from, but coming home alone, pulling out some leftovers in this big, beautiful kitchen and like cutting back and forth to her on this date with this duker who my friend played perfectly just perfect <laughs> really really captured that that douchey banker quality and it's just like intercutting the two and then you think she's just on a bad date you think she's lonely uh she's just like a lonely young woman and on a bad date um and then you know there's you see shots that she's in the bathroom with this guy like implied sleeping with this guy at the end of the bad dates you're like why is this person doing that and then you realize that her husband comes home and she's just like her older husband comes home and she's just bored and doesn't know what else to do with her life it's very just like kind of intercut a lot of like extreme close-ups because i had a a macro lens that i just wanted to play with so Mm. like her eyeball and like looking around and stuff like that um 
did want to talk about the uh, AFI experience. So AFI is what two years or more? Yes, it's two year. It's a two year program. You went in for directing. They spit you out after two years. I did. What was it? I mean, what was it? For, this is your first time in LA too, I assume. Yes. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever been to LA before that. I mean, I went to visit. Uh, yeah, but I moved to LA for the first time. And, yeah. Okay, so you've been there before, but um, I mean, mm-hmm. is, is it? I mean, because AFI it seems to me like is just better, like the stuff coming out of it's better than the other schools for, to to my eyes. Or at least the shorts are coming out when you see them at a festival. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's certainly. I mean, I think what AFI definitely gives you is like a very solid. You just got a very solid foundation in storytelling. And, you know, I think with every film school, it depends. Like, there's still going to be, like, the people that rise to the top. Like, the best people rise to the top. And AFI is, is hard because, like, they make you do a certain type of, like, it's not great. It's 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 hard to make, like, a, a good festival short, I think, at AFI because they, you, anything you do have a three-act structure, they're not going to let you do a thesis film that's, like, less than 15 minutes because you don't have time to do a three-act structure, whereas I think most festival shorts, the the standard format for a festival short is like basically like intriguing setup with a twist. Yeah. And so like, you know, the ideal festival short is like eight minutes takes you one way. I heard Kevin Smith compared to just telling a joke where you just have to have a setup and a punchline. Exactly. That, that to me seems like that is like the festival short and you couldn't get away with that at AFI, which everybody was like, you know, they just didn't allow you to do that but it does set you up for i mean they're very it's like it's like figure drawing i felt like if i was really great because people that are no one to nyu they get to really experiment they get to get crazy and that's fun but and you're and you get to experiment surrounded by like the most talented faculty but if i was very much like these are the at least when i was there these are the basic this is the foundation of storytelling and of direct and like you know you really learn the craft of directing even like when I was in Lithuania and talking to these Lithuanian film students, like they get like one director per year is kind of like their mentor. And so they just like learn one director's kind of like individual vision and approach to filmmaking. Whereas at AFI was very much like, this is the craft as a director, these are your tools. And it very much felt like a craft. Like, you know, these are, if they're, if a scene is going wrong, this is how you can fix it. And I remember, you know, we'd have some, several of our teachers were TV directors who like, craftsmen you know they're not the ones coming up with the visual imagery they're not the ones coming up with this like artistic vision they're the ones that need to execute um and i think especially for me that was really useful i mean even still i like i like to experiment and get weird but um yeah at least having that basic knowledge of that it is a craft um and and that there is like a a skill set and there's something you can actually learn and 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 uh were you editing Those are muscles your, that you need to understand. Were you editing your stuff at AFI or were you having to hand it off to somebody? We were else? we were not allowed to. A director was not allowed to touch the avid. Um, which was frustrating at first, but then like very is a great lesson also. Um, at first I was like, I can edit better than any of these people. Why are they making me sit back and not edit? then you realize how nice it is to have someone else do their take of something mm. and like having those fresh eyes and what you get out of that was super helpful. But yeah, it was, it was, you're not allowed to, and beforehand, you know, I shot, I wrote, I produced, I edited, I did everything. Cause there was, you know, I'd get, sometimes there was some friends involved, but 
not being allowed to do anything else was uh was kind of nice were you editing anybody else's stuff during this time or was it strictly directing uh when i was at afi i would make i would take like little like weekend gigs i had a friend from high school who was working at a production company called dakota films they did like flight of the concords and some really cool stuff um but they'd have little get he'd like throw me little gigs for the weekend so like cutting together like a little commercial for like virgin wines that would be shown on like the airline so it was like you know is that why like there's all this weird stuff at the bottom of your imdb like um that like uh, mtv award stuff or um, yes that's exactly there's right. like a bill maher thing i think on your bottom yeah. of your imdb um, that is all that stuff when i was at afi i was that was how i'd make uh my drinking money <laughs> so it was uh california was your thesis film it was, yeah. What was that? It was about a Lithuanian immigrant. It was, it was so it was basically about like a Lithuanian immigrant in uh, who arrives to find his to he's searching for his brother and he arrives in L.A. where his brother lives and he surprises his brother in L.A. Um, and he came illegally from Lithuania and he got involved with some sort of illicit driving of contraband he's a truck driver and he shows up with this massive 18 wheeler to his brother's house and he needs to drop it off somewhere we don't know the details about what's in the truck we just know that it's ominous and that he has a bag full of cash um how long was it it was 23 minutes the runtime were you able to get a um a little bit of a three act or something a little yeah, it was very, I mean, like, that's the thing. I think, like, one of the bigger criticisms you could make of the short is that it's too much stuffed into a short, like, mm -hmm. you know, and it was based off an idea I had for a future. Um, it was actually based off of a friend of mine. I, I, I had a friend in Lithuania who was, who lived here illegally for four or five years and was, and became a, a truck driver. And he was driving 18 wheelers around the country and he was, like, working for the shady guy. Of course, I embellished a lot. Um, and he never moved to LA. His brother was in Florida, but you know, uh, so, and I had this idea for a feature based on that. And so I just kind of tried shoving that all into this, uh, into this short. I mean, did you ever, did you do the thing where you made the short and you had the script in tow for the feature already? Or... No, I didn't. I mean, I, um, you're just ready to develop it. If someone was into the, short. I had an outline, I was ready. I'd started all that stuff, but really, uh, Terry screwed all those plans up because I was I was hired right away to work for for Mr. Malik in Austin right after graduating. So right I, went, after I was able to go to I was literally my my interview with Mark was the day before my graduation. This would have been Mark Yushikawa. Mm -hmm. Was this to work on a Knight of Cups or? Yeah. OK, so you did work on Knight of Cups. Yes. OK, so. um did you just, I mean, you just moved out to Austin that summer? Yeah, yeah. End of that summer, I had, uh, I got to go to the Seattle Film Festival. I don't, I think I actually had already gotten, because we, in California, played in a bunch of festivals, and I only got to go to one. It was my only festival experience. That's a bummer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of, <laughs> missed out on a lot of things, but, you know. How many, how many years did you end up working for Terry? I worked for Terry, I, I want to say three and a half years. Okay. Were you done Three after? Years. Were you done after? Did you finish up song to song? Song to song. So I left when we all had to leave for song to song. Like when song to song was quote unquote finished. Okay. I'm trying. I I, I think that was that was after my time because I was only on song to song for about a month and a half. So and it was in the yeah. Middle. So I left with uh, me, AJ, and Keith all 
all finished up and, and um so the voyage of time people stayed on and may or may not have what was that actually finished what was your experience getting to austin like it was great um i had never as an east coast kid i'd never imagined living in texas and i had all of like the sort of east coast kid stereotypes of texas and I remember being like blown away by Austin. I loved it. Um, it was very cool at first because I was working nights. And so night shift was actually the best. Oh, I was, um, I was night shift forever there too. And yeah, it's, yeah. Did you, I mean, did you, I did a lot of, my thing with night shift was um, I would, I remember I did the little card with five stuff and I could do experiments and I, or, mm-hmm. and I could do my own stuff, but also I'd have assignments, but I'd have, I'd be allowed to have experiments. Was it similar with you? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was most, I mean, you know, we had to, and especially when you start there, it's like you just have all this beautiful footage. And even if you're doing select reels, like, it's great. And you're hanging out with your friends and you're doing experiments and you're showing them, you're showing each other what you did. And like, it's, the office is empty and there's no stress and nobody's stressed about anything. You know, it's just like a really beautiful environment. Um, Just like hanging out with other, like, other film kids that are doing interesting things and you're just, showing each other your little cuts that may or may never may or may not ever get seen or used or whatever. But. Sure. I, I, the thing I miss more about that place is that there was a genuine feeling that like, um, openness that I've never had on any other film where like, we genuinely want to try to change language of film. We want to do something mm. legitimately different and try it. And th- that works too, not just artiness or experimentation for experimentation's sake. And like you, people were interested in it and we, we developed a language where we actually could talk about it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There was an there's an idealism there that uh, at least from the the perspective, I don't know. For me, it was more when I when I started there. There's like this idealism uh, or like an idealistic approach to filmmaking. But I mean, I've been lucky to work on 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 movies since then, where the directors are also as an editor, where like the directors also want to want to do something different. And are able to, you know, like I've been able to, to sort of uh, on a few projects get this like nice balance of, of uh, an independent film that has a little bit of money. So it's comfortable to work or it's possible to work um, and live uh, and also have a desire to do something like different and groundbreaking. It's not nearly at the level of experimentation that is possible on a Malik film, but you know still that desire is there around this time is when you shot squirrel is when you first got to austin or in the middle or it was in the middle it was maybe towards the end i mean it was middle towards the end it took a long time because we you know we had one day off a week and so i'd shoot a few hours i remember recognizing a shot in there outside the office oh yeah 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 one of the shots kind of was just like right where we do our little evening walks uh just right up there where the highway turns you just put the camera right where the highway's coming then there's the i was i was driving home and i had this little black magic in my backpack and i was driving home and there was a softball game again right around the corner from the office and i just pulled over and got some shots of that it was really interesting i mean part of it was just like being overworked and like on someone else's project where i was like i just need to do something for myself and like in a weird way stealing the approach of like just use natural light, just find things and kind of like make the story in the edit. I think like that's one of the big things I learned. I feel like uh, like Terry's unwittingly discovered those, this like the 
this amazing way to make a no budget film. You just need to have, it just needs to be the right film right. where it's like, you need to have actors that are available and want to work with you, you know, uh, over a long period of time. Cause I, we, we shot squirrel over, I mean, it was months and months. Cause we didn't even, at first I was just shooting things. And then I was like, what's finding the story. And then after the story was there, then it was like, okay, well now we need to fill in these bits. Um, it wasn't intended to be anything at first. Well, I should jump back. Were, um, you did some AE work still in New York, too? Yes. Yeah, the first thing I ever worked on was Tiny Furniture, Lena Dunham's movie. That was my first, like, real... How long were you on that? The whole time. I mean, the whole, the, the whole time. Uh, was, I'm, I'm I don't curious know, like how, long how long their post uh, schedule was, more than anything else. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, it was unpaid, so... They just fed me, but it was like a tiny group. This guy, Lance Edmonds, was the editor. And that was the first time that I really, I think I learned to edit. I mean, like I'd been editing things for years before that, but that was when I learned how to really edit. I was like, oh, there is a system to this because um, everything else I'd been doing was just kind of like throw, just drag and drop and throw things together and shuffle things around and whatever. Okay. Um, and it was very interesting to see that. It was just such a, it was such a small group of people, like kind of like young filmmakers, but they were all super talented. And it was really great for that. Was Meek's Cutoff a similar situation? Meek's Cutoff of Tiny Furniture is because Lance had worked with the... It's, it's so funny how they're all connected. I mean, that's the film world, I guess. Because yeah. um, Meek's Cutoff was Anish Savjani. He was the producer who was the producer of I Don't Feel at Home in This World anymore. Like all these kind of weird um connections. But yeah, they, they, they need... Basically, because when they saw that I was like a hard worker and I knew what I was doing they started recommending me because I was doing it for free. They started recommending me for whatever. So I started getting little paid, little paid jobs. And uh, Meek's Cutoff was also like there. This editor on Meek's Cutoff had to leave. So I came on as the, to replace him. But the edit was kind of close to done by the, it was like just the last few, it was maybe like the last month of the editing for Meek's Cutoff. And then I was mostly just like delivery stuff and cleaning up the project. So, um, when you left uh, the Malik world, um, were you? Um, I thought you had shot some stuff already on your feature. Am I missing that, or were you about to go off and shoot some the initial stuff in Lithuania? I hadn't shot anything. I was shoot so after Squirrel, I had this this revelation that I was like, oh, I could if I use non professional actors or friends, I could shoot a feature, funny, just natural light and just like very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, uh and so i started doing that and i have like terabytes of footage uh with some very close friends in austin but squirrel got into berlin i went to berlin i met a lithuanian producer there and the lithuanian producer's like we could finance a feature for you in lithuania so everything basically so then i kind of shifted gears to write to quickly write the street i hadn't had, when i was working for terry i didn't even have the idea of making a film in Lithuania. I had not no no concept of it. And then when I met this right after the, my last day working for Terry, I got on the flight to Berlin. And uh, so, how long and, did uh, the feature shoot? Uh, how long did that end up being? We shot for twenty. I think we had twenty seven shooting days. Twenty five. Was it this was was it not this was off and on or not? No, no, it was just one. It was a very, very standard kind of, I was there for three months of prep. So, I mean, we shot the treat. I mean, like, so by the time, it took two years to write the script. So I edited 
kicks and I don't feel at home in this world anymore. And this movie called Jonathan before, before I started shooting my feet. I mean, I was basically editing and writing after Malik, after working for Terry. Okay. So after you I guess I did have a question about the balance. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. is it, is it just basically editing is the day job and, um, that can inform you and teach you more stuff, but it's obviously writing directing is, is the main thing. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I really enjoy editing. I, uh, you know, I've told there's, there's several people that I would like, uh, continue editing for regardless of success in directing. Uh, if, if I were to, you know, be able to, to live purely off directing, but even, I mean, like, it's a, it's a tough thing. Like I could, at this point, like I could just live in Lithuania and direct movies. That's, that is, I mean, cause it's cheaper to live there and, and that's, you know, in Lithuania, I'm a director and, and, and the, 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 my, my movie was successful enough over there to, to warrant a second, but there's something about being here and working on interesting projects projects of a bigger scale of a bigger scope you know um it there is something about that like you know three months of like trying to put someone else trying to understand and execute someone else's vision when you when you have a great relationship with that person is is fantastic the fun um, thing i found with this is, is well the tricky thing is like when you work with someone new it's it's a new job so you're tearing off the band-aid and you're mm-hmm. making a new working relationship but at the same time, if they're good at something, you're going to learn what they're good at, and you're going to learn, and you can apply Absolutely. that to your craft. And you can, whether you're going, to, you can apply that to the, your own stuff you're going to shoot or other stuff you're going to edit in the future. That's always yeah, um, absolutely. What was no, having a good yeah editing editing with someone that you get along with is is fantastic. Yeah, that is a sweet spot. Um, I want to talk about kicks. Was that your first? Uh-huh. Was that your first feature you edited after? No, so I was actually, I uh. Man, no wonder my 20s ran by. I was editing. There was a movie called Nakom that I edited while working for Terry. I These oh, two I friends, I do self, yeah, they self-financed a uh, uh, very small budget. They shot it in Ghana, and they wanted me to edit. And I was like, well, I'm working 12-hour days, but I can give you an hour a night maybe. Uh, if you don't have a if you don't have a deadline. <laughs> and so that's what I did. I uh, edited after work an hour or whatever I, um, I still have the same reaction when you told me that that's that's insane <laughs> like I, I can't i have trouble writing whenever i'm working on someone else's stuff because my brain just has to like stay straight on it the entire time like multitasking yeah yeah it was tough um i actually think writing is harder when you come back from work than just like sitting down because there's something with editing where the hardest part was just pressing you know pressing the space bar to get the footage rolling once the footage is rolling you have natural instincts. You automatically there. start being like, yeah, this should, should. but writing to me, I'm, I'm more like writing after a long day of working is more difficult for me than that's, you know, that totally, something else. In. That totally makes sense. Um, then you got um, after. So, I mean, but then what was kicks like? So kicks was because I knew, I knew the director and the co-writer at AFI. I wasn't friends with the director, but we like, as he describes it, we, appreciated one another from afar he was a year ahead of me um and the the co-writer was was a a friend of mine um they had to replace their they were looking for a replacement for their editor and they both wanted they both wanted me to work on it but the producers you know there's like this thing with like indie producers where like if you haven't edited something in sundance you don't count um 
So they were very hesitant to, to hire me, but because Nakom, I've had the experience had where it. if you have it, it's something at Sundance, you still don't count, but yeah. Well, I mean, of course, but, of course yeah. this is, yeah, it's, it's funny. What editing is a weird job because like nobody knows what you've done. Yeah. And sometimes you haven't done anything and you get a lot of credit for it. And sometimes you did everything and you get no credit for it. So it's a it's a weird. Uh, that's, that's well said. Yeah, I mean, it's true. There's certain sequences in movies that I've edited that people are like, "Man, that's great editing." And I'm like, "This is the easy stuff." Like that's like, you just you know, cut some pretty images together to to to, to music. Everybody's gonna think you're a great editor. But like, there's certain performances that are like where you have to like really sculpt that performance. Where, I mean, that actor should be paying you you know a cut of every paycheck. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Um. Did I mean I remember. I remember sending you the like I really liked Kicks after I saw it. Um, uh, was was the the Making Blair movie the next one? Making Blair was the next thing after Kicks, yeah. Okay, how was like? I remember uh, we have we had we all have mutual friends. Uh, Julia Block uh, edited uh, right, right. Uh, some of his performances, and um, yeah, Macon wanted Julia to edit initially wanted her to edit and uh, I don't feel this well, well i remember specifically uh julie and i still talk pretty similar or mostly through like texts mm-hmm. or something but i remember texting her um i ran into macon blair at austin comics and i texted her that that exact sentence and she said there's like 15 things in that sentence that makes her so happy but i mean like i've never yeah. i've never i that was the only time i've ever met him so like mm-hmm. i mean what was the experience like on that He's great. He's uh, he's one of my favorite people. He's like one of those people that I'm like, I'd always edit for him. It's, I think it's rare to find someone like that who like really has a, a clear vision of what they want is really has like a good sense of humor about things um, is, is very open. Like th- there's like no ego in his working. It's like, there's like this perfect balance of really knowing what you want and not carrying like a massive sort of like ego and insecurity that like most I'd say most creative people have some degree of that ego and insecurity that can create for like, you know, it has to be my way. It's, you know, you're almost used to when you're at someone's movies, like you see some things where you're like, okay, I know we're going to lose this scene or this dialogue, but it's going to take three months to get there. You know, something where it's like, he's just like willing to look at anything. And, you know, there's plenty of stuff that we disagreed on initially and stuff like that, but there's just like such a smooth way of finding, finding that, that balance yeah, and it's it's it was pleasant because like you know I'm not a I, I'm not nearly as versed in in the sort of the genres that Macon kind of grew up on and and loves, but I think that was almost like a necessary balance for us to find because like there's certain places where he'd want to go too far and I'd maybe try to pull things back or try to like ground things a little more. Did you find any of your like pulpy uh, uh, action movie instincts coming out at all a little too? For sure, for sure. Because like editing that final action sequence is the most fun I've had. I've never edited anything like that. And it was a blast. Like, it, and like I found like my inner teen, like preteen giggling at like it exploding or whatever it is. It was great. It was, it was, uh, yeah. it was really fun to edit. Um, I guess uh, I don't know any, I haven't seen Jonathan. I don't remember when you were working on it. So mm-hmm. I guess, can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, it's great. It's a nice, it's a nice movie. Uh, Bill Oliver's actor, he's, thing is and developing a second feature now also an actor but i got it through my agent who's my personal connection yeah it's kind of a rare it's funny the trailer would suggest this like 
kind of action thriller element to it, but it's a very slow burn. And it's nice to have, like, it's, it's rare to see kind of American indie, uh, indies, even indies that like have that much sort of like patience and restraint. Shot by this guy, Zach Cooperstein, who's a friend here in New York, who's become a friend uh, here in New York. We shot a lot of great indie films and just like the, you can, you can really feel his touch on it as well. But it was very different. I mean, like that's a movie where there's, there are parts where like, it looks like I have to do like some like super fast cutting or something like that. But, but there was a lot of like very subtle sculpting work or like really subtle, like you don't have a lot of places to cut. So it's, uh, and, and the director was very aware of things like continuity and pacing. Just like there was, there was a lot of like particular things that were these kind of, I'd say like restrictions in the edit. So you were doing very like kind of fine work, the line performance from another finding where they can like mix together to get like the right, like the right, tone or, or or something like that um but it's uh, nice i did um i think i guess i wanted to get your opinion because this is something that I've, i used to talk about although i don't really have to talk about it anymore just because mm-hmm. uh you know no agents calling me anymore it's like it's like that that saying of like uh, when they talked about 80s hardcore bands selling now it's like you can't sell out if no one's buying um but <laughs> How how what is your opinion on your agent or just agents in general or editors taking agents? I mean, uh, mixed feelings. I mean, especially now you have like several agencies that kind of just like have gobbled up all of your below the line people, so like they don't have a huge incentive to be finding individuals work because they have they're getting their ten percent from the editor or production designer or cinematographer, regardless. Okay. At the same time, like I am not like I, I'm really bad at the business stuff. Like I would have edited kicks for free. I mean, I basically I got paid very little. And after that, the producers put me in touch, and she reached out. I was like, I think that was her first sign because she'd just been promoted, and and so she knew these the producers from New York, uh, and they were they were happy with. They did yeah. There's this guy in Austin doesn't have an agent, and we should look at him. Um. So. So at first she was very hungry and she got me a lot of jobs because I was first sign, uh, which was great. And there, it's it's nice. To, I mean, I would not I would not know how to handle some of these like negotiations and things. Uh, on the other hand, like you know, if you're on if it's a union film, like there's just a standard rate that you're going to get, and that's that. And so there's not that much negotiation involved. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that a lot of it's you know I think the best the best opportunities are still going to come through people you know. Cause like, it's it kind of like, you're, you're sure that you're going to, you, it, it's a much better chance of having the same sensibility uh, or, or, a, or a, I guess a that matching sense. sensibility. That makes sense. Cause I've definitely had jobs through my agent that I was not happy about. Uh, even if, you know, not from like a tech, it's just like, Oh, this is not the style of film that I want to be working on or something like that. And you read a lot of, and well, do you have to, yeah, so, you, you don't, you're not ever going to have to go back to doing AE or stuff like that are you no no i haven't done any ae work um in a very long time there was another editor uh had on robert grigsby wilson and he had um he had a movie at sundance this year and he was talking about just like the just kind of like wavering line where he's doing features but he was doing everything to features tv but mm-hmm. he still had to dip his toe and i knew him from a facebook group of a lot of mm-hmm. like there's there's a certain line of indie editors that still have to dip their toe back to doing assistant editing just to get it whether it's to get their health insurance or just they need a gig still too 
Right. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm on a couple non-union things now. So <laughs> for health insurance, it might be it might be an issue coming up. But I've been um, I mean, there's been like, you know, there was a moment last fall where I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to have it like, you know, my my agent had kind of disappeared. Well, not disappeared. She like, you know, she put me up for a couple things. One of them I got, but then they pushed another one thought I'd got but then I found something for myself on my own and then all these other and then once I told my agent like hey I'm booked until whatever it is mid-March then she sort of really like got back and then she started sending me all these scripts and everything so I don't know if that's coincidence or not huh. where it's like once she realized that I found something for myself I mean she's great I, I do like you know she, but she also has a lot of great clients so she doesn't have like this like massive incentive to like be looking for work for me and also so like when I would come back from the plane I'd be like hey I'm I'm around you know, let me know if anything comes up. But I also then like had said no to some really, really great. I mean, I guess I haven't hadn't gotten offers, and that, but like even like reading scripts from like like legitimate productions where I was just like, no, I'm gonna be in Lithuania or I'm going to this festival or whatever it is. So I haven't been like the best client for her either. So I can't really be uh, super annoyed by by that, especially after I don't feel at home in this world uh, anymore. Won the the grand jury prize at Sundance before literally like a month later I went to Lithuania so that's when I was getting all of these offers or or at least people were showing interest and I just I just had to say no to a string of things for right. for eight or nine months or something um, um so um I can edit this out if you don't want to talk about this but was there a movie you got fired off of fire yeah yes and no yeah so there's a movie that I I mean, you know, we, we edited the entire, we edited up to the date of my contract. Oh. Um, and uh, who knows? Uh, I mean, so basically I, I was getting really frustrated by the movie and by the director. It was just, it was, it was one of those situations where like, this is a bunch of people that, that really care more about their title. So from producer, from producers to director, all all down the line, like nobody was kind of being open about anything. It was really a, an eye-opening experience. Um, but they, and the financier just wasn't happy with the movie. And as these people do, they just like decide to throw money at the problem. And so after I left, they decided to reopen the edit with a, an extremely experienced, you know, Oscar-nominated, maybe Oscar-winning editor that the financier had worked with before. And I, you know, I talked to her a bunch of times on the phone and everything, and it sort of became clear that that's just what the movie is. I mean, she told them herself, like, there's, there's nothing here that can be done. Uh, so they just, uh, which was kind of a, a very validating thing for me, because even the director called and was like, yeah, you know. Really? Okay. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, unless he was blowing smoke up my ass, but everybody that I've talked to said that it hasn't really changed. Uh, I guess I've, I've always been curious about editors being one of the first people on the chopping block whenever the movie isn't working and like, but it sounds like from your experience, like you were kind of ready to go anyway. Oh, I was, I was, I mean, that's, that's one of the few times that I've been ready to quit a job. I was very frustrated by that experience. It was the sort of thing where, you know, you're on the, and you don't know how to play these power games or it's not power games, like these politics. Cause like there's, we're on the speakerphone and the producer's like, okay, well we need more close-ups in this scene. And the director's like, yeah, you're right, I agree. And I'm sitting there quietly like, you know, we don't have any close-ups, no close-ups were shot. Why are you telling this person that you agree to that note? 
and you just sort of in like eventually I was just this I at some point and in, in the way the structure had been working he was just throwing everybody under the bus like I see him talking to producers and he's like oh this is the production designer's fault oh this is the actor's fault so I just like and you you hear on these calls I was saying like yeah 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 I agree we should add more close-ups there or yeah we should lengthen that shot and I'm sitting there quietly being like well we don't have close-ups and we don't have the foot like we can't we can't CGI a close-up, you know, like it's not going to work. One of, um, one of our mutual friends was telling me he was on his job where um, he worked for like seven days and he finally had to sit the director down and say, you understand I can't create images. I just rearrange images, but I can't make something up new from scratch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think a lot of it is personality match as well. Me and this director didn't like I mean we tolerated each other but like it was very frustrating for me I just and I just come here in Eastern Europe and like he's a very LA guy and like if I don't like something I tell them tell someone that I don't like it and like I could see from the beginning that me kind of sighing and being like well I don't think this is a good performance was not the way like you know and I saw how his friends would come in and be like this is brilliant but you know and I just didn't function that way and like you know so he wanted to be told that he's like the next big thing and and so like you know i think that this director was far happier to let the financier throw in sort of like you know throw away some more money to see if someone who cost you know god knows how much more than i do um uh-huh. could fix things but it's it's you know it's always a little validating when it was one of those things where I, when I was leaving, I had the sense like because you know you know when you've like finished something um and it didn't feel like we finished it oh um so I had, I had a sense that this would happen and just, and again, having seen how this director had thrown other people under the, like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised by anything that happened. And I was, it was one of those kind of good riddance moments. So, I mean, Lithuania, I mean, seems to be coming up a lot in your stuff. Is it a uh, chicken egg thing where like you, you have a base where you can keep making movies there if you want to, or is it something that's legitimately like, this is just fostered from your in your dna and you have literally and you have to write about and make movies about it's interesting i mean every i mean so much of what i've done is in some way related to it i just think it was such a part of my identity growing up that's like you know my thesis film and stuff like that it's just like there's something about that being like a stranger in your own world feel that even like that theme because like you know even like I was you know raised in the U.S. as an American um, but my name is pronounced a little funny and I feel like I'm from this like you know my parents my home life was very different to anybody else's and like the way my parents talked was different for everybody else so I feel like that that aspect of things is really just you know inevitably part of my identity and and because I spent all my summers there growing up I always kind of dreamed of a way that I could have like maintain that relationship with uh with lithuania i mean it's a love-hate relationship there's things that i love about it and there's things that i that i don't but it's it's very much hard to uh to shake that that part of me i guess are you working on the next feature out there yes we've got a few drafts written we've we've gotten development money um we've found a few co-producers european co-producers that are interested in uh, moving forward and we should know by the fall uh, if we're shooting. And the idea would be to shoot next winter. Okay, cool. So, uh, Tomas Vegas, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Cool.